As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, man? How are you? Chilling, man. As per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. On this episode, we're going to talk about South Korea and um, the rise of uh, Sigmund Rhee. Danny, why don't you recap our last episode for us real quick, just so people... For sure. Yeah. So on last episode, we basically spoke about the rise of Kim Il-sung, the first leader of North Korea. So quick bullet points on that. He was born in the north uh, with the name Kim Song-ju. Uh, his family ends up moving to Manchuria uh, on for questionable reasons. And uh, he spent most of his time in China and barely spoke Korean because of that. Uh, he ends up skipping out on school to join some communist groups. And he gets a little bit of notoriety fighting the Japanese in Manchuria and also alongside communists in China. And eventually he ends up changing his name to Kim Il-sung, the name that we all know. And there's a ton of debate on whether or not maybe this wasn't even the same guy. Uh, But if you want more information about that, you're going to have to listen to the last episode. And uh, eventually he gets propped up uh, by the Soviets as their second string quarterback, basically, uh, to lead North Korea as a communist nation. And initially he does like some pretty great things socially and economically for the North. You know, he has a leg up, obviously, because he's being, you know, backed directly by uh, the Soviet Union, who was pretty powerful at the time. But also, you know, he just conveniently had all of the heavy industry from the Japanese uh, when they were uh, occupying Korea. So, you know, he, he, he started with a leg up. Uh, but then after that, you know, it all comes crashing down, basically. And he ends up creating a crazy cult of personality and uh, the dynasty that we all know and love today. The Kim family. And that's the story in a nutshell. <laughs> the world's favorite family. So, yeah, well, now we're going to talk about the, um, I guess, the yin to his yang, which is the the South Korean dictator, Sigmund Rhee. Um, so, I guess, you know, Kim Il-sung, we all know Kim Il-sung. Um, well, at least everyone knows his... his um, his grandson and Kim Jong Un and his uh, son Kim Jong Il as his supreme leaders, but um, Sigmund Rhee is pretty much forgotten in history. So he was president of South Korea for 22 years, and he is the definition of a proxy leader. So when the country finally rebelled against the Rhee, he was ferried away on CIA helicopters as crowds entered his uh, presidential palace in 1960. He was um. You know, a despot. The U.S. didn't even really like working with him that much, and um, you know his a lot of his actions end up provoking the rebellion in the South that serves as the prelude to the Northern invasion. And 
what ultimately made the Korean War inevitable was that Ri's um, police force, his national police force, and his his army were drawn from the ranks of those who collaborated with the Japanese occupation during World War II. Now, um, you know, we did a couple, we did an episode on on you know why this would be such a nuclear issue uh, when we covered Japanese war crimes in Korea and in the Japanese annexation of Korea. So this is one of the, the powder crags that erupts uh, into this, this full-blown conflict that kills millions of people. Now, prior to World War II, the U.S. didn't really have a strong reason to be involved in a Korean, uh, Korean affairs. Um, even though the U.S. was using gunpoint diplomacy, not only with Japan, but also towards the Joseon dynasty in Korea in the 19th century. Um, you know, in the, in the case of Korea, this leads to the Sherman incident where the U.S. actually kills 243 Koreans. But the U.S. had, um, you know, unequal treaties with the Joseon dynasty, but these treaties ended after Japan annexed Korea in 1910. The U.S. became interested in Korea again during the final stages of World War II, when it was clear that the Japanese were going to lose the war. They had to figure out what they were going to do with all these former Japanese colonies. And Korea wasn't some island in the Pacific like the Philippines or, or uh, New Guinea. Um, it's a peninsula that's surrounded by three of the world's greatest nations, Russia, China, and Japan. The, the nickname for the Korean peninsula is the Storm Center. So um, in 1943, the U.S. declared, and this is during the war, they declared a very vague declaration of Korean independence um, you know, while Korea was still being occupied by Japan. During the Yalta Conference in February 1945, FDR, he proposed a four-power trusteeship for, uh, for Korea. Um, that would include the U.S., um, the Great Britain, the Soviet Union, and then China, you know, assuming that the right party is going to win in China during the Chinese Civil War. However, uh, Stalin rejected that agreement, but they um, went back to the table in May of 1945 during the Potsdam Conference, and one of the U.S. goals during the Potsdam Conference was to get the Soviet Union to join the war effort against Japan, who had not surrendered yet. So the Soviets entered the war on, um, on August 8, 1945. And, um, you know, they pledged to support this vague declaration of Korean independence from 1943. And the new plan for Korea is to split it up north and south. So in August 1945, when the Japanese surrender, uh, the 38th parallel was established as the boundary between the Soviet and then the American occupation zones in Korea. So this is what creates the modern-day North and South Korea, the 38th parallel, the agreement between the United States and the Soviet Union, the split up Korea, the split up the former Japanese colonies. Now, after World War II, U.S. policy shifted from making Korea a um, you know united, independent nation-state to making it a bulwark against the Soviet Union. You know, having backed the Maoists during World War II in cooperation with the Soviet Union. Um, the U.S. lost China. So, you know, if you look back in, in the media in the 1940s after the war, there's a big thing, there's a big story 
saying who lost China. Like that was like the big story. Who lost China? Who lost China? Meaning who let the Chinese, who let China get taken over by communists? You know, we were, we were supporting, we were putting millions and millions of dollars into the Chinese Nationalist Party. And they end up fleeing and losing the war and they flee to Taiwan. So Truman was determined not to lose Korea as well. But it's very well known that the northern Soviet factions of Korea were a lot more powerful than the southern. South Korea at the time was largely impoverished. Uh, North Korea, like you said earlier, is where the Japanese built their industrial centers during their occupation. And um, the North also had the war veterans who were fighting the Japanese in Manchuria. And a lot of them, a lot of them even served in the Red Army fighting the Germans during World War II. So um, I pulled up a, uh, a CIA, like in preparation to this, I was reading uh, old uh, CIA reports to Truman. And um, here's one that's called Consequences of U.S. Troop Withdrawal from Korea in the Spring of 1949. So um, withdrawal of U.S. forces from Korea in the Spring of 1949 would probably in time be followed by an invasion time to coincide with communist-led South Korean revolts by the North Korean People's Army assisted by small battle train units from the communist Manchuria. Although it could be presumed that South Korea's security forces will eventually develop sufficient strength to resist such an invasion, they will not have achieved that capability by the spring of 1949. It is unlikely that such strength will be achieved before January 1950, assuming that Korean communists would make aggressive use of the opportunity presented. The U.S. troop troop withdrawal would probably result in a collapse of the U.S.-supported Republic of Korea, an event which would seriously diminish U.S. prestige and adversely affect U.S. security interests in the Far East. In contrast, Continued presence in Korea of a moderate U.S. force would not only discourage that threatened invasion, but would assist in sustaining the will and ability of the Koreans themselves to resist any further invasion once they had the military force to do so, and by sustaining the new republic, maintain U.S. prestige in the Far East. So this report that I just read, it goes on to add that uh, the communist, that if the communists take Korea, here are the, the major uh, geopolitical points that it really hits on. The Soviet Union will have naval supremacy in the Asia-Pacific. And then it also addresses the concern that the communists in Korea could link up with the Japanese Communist Party. The, the Japanese Communist Party had been outlawed during World War II, um, even before that, but after the Allied uh, o- occupation, they legalized the Japanese Communist Party, and they ended up winning 10% of the vote in, 1940, in the 1949 election. So there was a fear that, you know, this is the domino theory, the domino effect that one country goes communist, you know, all the surrounding countries will turn communist as well. And it dictated U.S. foreign policy for many years. This thinking that if you know one country goes communist, that popular revolution will spread to the, their neighbors. Therefore, the policy was in order to stop the spread of communism in East Asia, the new government of Korea would, would have to be an anti-communist government. So the ultimate question becomes, who's going to be the leader of this new government? Who's going to be a guy who's tough on communism 
well, not only tough on communism, but also who's going to follow U.S. policy. And um, a man named Sigmund Rhee appears on the scene. And Sigmund Rhee is personally recommended to General MacArthur by Chiang Kai-shek. And uh, Chiang Kai-shek was the leader of the, of the Chinese Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang. And um, he's the guy that the United States invested millions and millions of dollars in to, to win the Chinese Civil War. And um, he loses. He loses the war and he flees to Taiwan and has to set up a new government. That's where who comes, uh, who lost China comes from. Uh, but Chiang Kai-shek and Syngman Rhee, they're probably, they probably are the um, biggest killers of communists in human history. Them, them too. Like the, the biggest slayers of, com- of commies, of communists. Definitely are. Maybe they definitely are. Yeah, 100%. Without a doubt. Um, just as far as this brutality in the way they hunted communists. Oh, yeah. Um, they, 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 they hunted them. But Rhee was seen as the only Korean with the educational and professional background and, quite frankly, the personality to be that anti-communist leader. Right. And I want to talk a little bit about Syngman Rhee and his backstory because... As you pointed out, Sigmund Rhee gets gets forgotten a lot in history. You know, we, we all know about the Kim Dynasty, and we all know a lot about other things. And and I mean, even shoot, like I know that both of us, when we were doing this, you know, like we had maybe heard of Sigmund Rhee or or vaguely just understood that he was like the leader of South Korea, but we didn't really get it. We didn't really understand like who he was and like why he was important. And you know, after learning so much about him, I think. You know, he's kind of fascinating and, and it's interesting to, to juxtapose him against Kim Il-sung, uh, you know, from the last episode, because in many ways they're very similar. Um, and, and but their definition of two paths. sides of the both they're, they're sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, definition of two sides of the same coin. A hundred percent. Yeah, dude. It's so it's so wild. It's so wild. It's like the roads that they took to get where they were were completely different, but they're kind of a lot the same. So I'm, I'm going to uh, rely a lot on this talk uh, on Syngman Rhee uh, that was given by this guy, David Fields, uh, from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, and it was called the, the Three Revolutions of Syngman Rhee. He also wrote a book about Syngman Rhee. And this, this talk that he gives is, is basically the light version of that. And I'm going to give you the extra light version. Um, but definitely check that out because it was super interesting. Uh, just Google it. Um, but basically, the, the rundown on Rhee, you know, it starts... Well, actually, before I before I talk about that, the, the main points that that Dave Fields brings up is that Syngman Rhee has three major revolutions, right? And I'll just spill the beans and give them away now. He has a, a revolution in Korea for the Korean independence. He has a revolution in the United States for support uh, of you know Korean independence, and then he has a revolution against communism in South Korea. So those are the three. And we're definitely going to talk about all of them. Uh, but let's just start way in the beginning. So he was born, Rhee was born in 1875. And he was actually born into a, a caste, like a, like, a, um, like a social class called Yangban, uh, which I hope I'm saying right. Uh, and, and basically, this was the highest caste of traditional Joseon Korea. Um, and it was 
kind of equivalent to being like a noble, if you will, if you're thinking in terms of like European society. But just because you're in this caste didn't necessarily mean that you were wealthy or that your family had any particular influence. It was just like a caste system. And Ree's family in particular was not exactly poor, but definitely on the poor side if you were to compare them against their like other Yangban caste, you know, peers. And one of the reasons why his family was poor was because for a bunch of generations, they weren't able to produce a male heir who could pass this state civil service exam, whose name I'm not going to try and pronounce. Um, and basically this exam was how, you know, people in that Yangban like class were able to join the bureaucracy of the Joseon kingdom. And because of this, their family was in danger of basically falling out of the class. So from about eight years old, uh, you know, this kid starts studying to pass this particular exam, but he doesn't catch a break because in 1894, after the Sino-Japanese War, Japan ends up imposing, you know, a reformist government uh, in Korea. And one of the first things they do is abolish the civil service exam that this guy was spending his whole life <laughs> to study for. So, and he spent like a decade doing this and, and now it's like no longer an option for him. So he has to find a new career path, which is kind of funny. So he ends up uh, joining this uh, Christian Methodist missionary school. Uh, and at the time it was illegal for those schools to like try and convert people or like have religious education. So it was basically just a fancy private school. Uh, with like some Christian underpinnings, and it was an American you know, he, school. He, yeah, it was, exactly. just, it was an American school. It was an American school. That's exactly what it was. And uh, you know, he basically learns things like science and English, and you know, a bunch of trades, and in particular, how to run a printing press, which ends up becoming pretty important later. And so, this is where we can kind of start talking about, you know, the the first revolution that Re goes through, and. You know, one of the teachers at the school that he attended made a huge impact on Ri. Uh, he actually was involved in an attempt to overthrow the Joseon monarchy a, a while back. And I actually forget this guy's name, which is a shame. Um, but he, he tried to overthrow the Joseon monarchy like several years before. And he lived in exile in the United States. And then he ends up coming back to teach at Ri's school. Uh, and this is the guy who ends up radicalizing Ri. So he teaches Ri all about the West and specifically the U.S. and all the things that were lacking in Korea. Things like religious freedom and political rights and clean drinking water and shit like that, you know. And all the things that the West had got Ri thinking, like, why doesn't Korea have these things? You can look at it that way or you can look at it that, you know, Ri's teacher basically fed him all these ideas. It doesn't matter because these end up getting, you know, burned into Ree's head. And those thoughts turn into conversations with his peers at the school. And those conversations turn into a newspaper that reprints in the school's press. And that paper blows up so much that people all over town are reading it, not just in the school. And he also starts this debate club and they start doing these debates about like, you know, reforms in Korea. And those debates also extend well beyond the school grounds. And the focus of the newspapers and the debates are basically all about how to get the Korean government to, to do more reforms and be more Western. And Ri basically argues that without reforms, Korea will lose its independence. 
and he eventually gets invited to join the Korean independence movement after he graduates, which is noteworthy because most of that group's members were older and they either served in the government or they were educated abroad and Bree did neither of those things. Um, But basically they recognized his talents for public speaking and debate and his skills at you know, organizing mass demonstrations, which is funny because juxtaposed against um, Kim Il-sung from our last episode, you know, this guy, you know, Kim Il-sung had no education, could barely speak Korean, right? Uh, Whereas Ri is highly educated, speaks several languages, including Korean, uh, and, you know, is really good at public speaking, which Kim Il-sung apparently wasn't. Also super ironic is that at the time, Korea was still technically independent, but there was an independence movement that <laughs> Ri ends up joining. So that's that's kind of funny. Um, anyway, so so this we were technically independent, but the Jet, but Japan had already been kind of up. Yeah, there, there after, there after the Sino-Japanese yeah. War, like they had they had been dictating Korean policy, and they formally annexed it in 1910. But you know they they assassinated the monarch of of um, of Korea. So we'll talk about that. Actually, I got an interesting story about that in Rhea a little bit. So put a pin in that one. All right. Um, All right. So uh, the organization that he joins, right? Um, And Brie, they start staging these demonstrations outside of the outside of the buses and where they were demanding like, you know, reforms from the Korean government. And these like demonstrations end up getting so big that the conservatives in the in the Joseon court, they start getting feeling like a little threatened. Uh, by them and so they hire these thugs to go break up the demonstrations and like beat up demonstrators and what's funny about this is that Ri actually gets a bit of street cred from this because rather than you know like being intimidated by the thugs he would often like just jump off the stage and like fight back and he got his ass beat most of the time to be honest um but it, it you know it showed that he was tough and people respected him more for it uh which is pretty interesting and you know, it, these meetings and, and these demonstrations, they keep growing and Re becomes more and more radical and also like kind of very big headed about all the notoriety that he's getting. So he starts calling for um, the creation of what's called a privy council, which is basically just, you know, like some some council that has some oversight and governmental function in Korea. Right. And they actually succeed in this and he gets a seat at the table. But here's where he fucks up. And this is kind of a wild story. One of the first things he does is he brings back a bunch of exiled Koreans who were involved in the first failed attempt to assassinate Queen Min. So this is a year before the the Japanese actually pulled it off and set her on fire. So he starts repatriating all these these guys who are, who tried to kill the Joseon Queen. Anyway, nobody knows why the hell he did this. Even his supporters were like scratching their heads about it. Um, And the emperor basically immediately disbands the council and also the Korean independence club that he joined. And anybody who was a part of it was hunted down and sent to jail. So yeah, Marie basically just goes to jail, right? And initially the, you know, the Joseon government, they consider him a political prisoner, right? And they treated him fairly well. But after about, and this is another crazy ass story, 
After about six weeks in jail, he manages to get a supporter to smuggle him in a gun, right? And him and an accomplice break out of jail and they end up shooting a guard in the process. He gets arrested immediately and brought back to jail, but this time he's not a political prisoner anymore. He's a felon. They end up torturing him for six weeks and they were about to execute him until some American missionary stepped in and like helped him to just like get a lesser uh, sentence, which was a life sentence, which honestly might have been, might as well just been a, a better off executed because the prison conditions there were pretty terrible. And because he was like a felon, they were able to treat him as poorly as they wanted to. But, you know, somehow, I don't know how. I don't imagine made... there's a high standard in the Josian dynasty of mm-hmm. uh, treating uh, felons. Like, I don't think no. it's a great place to be. No, not at all. Especially ones that try to bring back people who try to over, <laughs> who try to execute their queen, right? So... Safe to say he was probably tortured a lot. Yeah, a lot. A lot, a lot. Um, and he manages somehow during this time to make friends in jail. And, and those folks basically keep him alive for the next seven years. He was in jail for seven years. And, you know, he spends his time in jail doing what, you know, people in jail normally do, which is read books and find religion. <laughs> you know, he becomes a Christian. He gets super good at English. I mean, he already spoke English, but like very good. Like he he started writing a Korean English dictionary and he makes it all the way to the letter F in like seven years, which is nuts. Can you imagine like sitting down and trying to write a dictionary? <laughs> it's like, what are all the yeah, words? You have a I lot know? of time and you're, you, you have a, a <laughs> lot of time on your hand when you're doing, when you're in prison. Seriously, seriously. Something else he did in jail was that he he writes his most famous book. And the book is called The Spirit of Independence. And in this book, he claims that the reason why his movement failed was not because it was his fault. It was because the Korean, it was the Korean people's fault, basically. Like they weren't ready for, you know, what he had in mind. Like Korea wasn't ready for his, you know, radical opinions. And he gets to this idea, and he writes about this in the book, that violence is going to be totally useless because the Koreans are too weak to, you know, defeat their own government or to defeat the Qing Chinese dynasty or to defeat the Japanese empire for that matter. And so he gets this idea for like this different approach to, you know, Korean independence. And it's, it's a twofold approach of educating Koreans about Western civilization. Basically, you know, the same thing that happened to him is like, look at all this cool shit that, you know, the West has to offer. You want to be a part of the West. And the second part of his approach was soliciting support from abroad in the West and specifically the U.S. And honestly, it was a genius idea. So pieces of this book that he writes, he didn't end up publishing until, you know, years after he got out. But while he was in jail and then he was writing these books, pieces of that book end up getting smuggled out. And they get printed anonymously and distributed everywhere. And, you know, the ideas start catching on. So by the time he's released in 1904, he's basically regarded as one of the most gifted Korean leaders. Right? And, and this is where we can kind of talk about the second revolution. Anyway, so let's talk about the second revolution because the first revolution failed. Right? The first revolution was in Korea for Korean independence. Didn't work out. You know, he got his little position on the Privy Council. 
And then he fucked that up. So the second revolution is, you know, after he gets out of prison. And when he gets out of prison, the first thing he does is go to America. And, you know, obviously it was basically part of his plan all along, right, to solicit, you know, help from the West and specifically the U.S. But, you know, part of this was that he had become a Christian and a lot of the missionaries were worried that he was going to get killed by the Japanese because, you know, the Japanese were already, you know, they hadn't officially taken over until 1910, but they were definitely heavily involved. And the Japanese really didn't like the growing Christian population at that point. So, you know, he, he escapes to the U.S. and he gets, you know, degrees in fancy American universities. Like yes, he gets a master's in Harvard and a Ph.D. in Princeton and he does it in five years, which is honestly pretty impressive. And also, he, he ends up becoming boys with Woodrow Wilson, which is an interesting story. Um, but I don't have time for that. Anyway, so a lot of these, you know, in the, in the States, a lot of these American Christians start becoming like super interested in fostering Asian Christianity, uh, in particular in Korea, because the growth of Christianity was super high. And, you know, Reed basically becomes the poster boy for giving talks about, you know, Christianity in, in Korea, all over the country. That's inter- that's interesting because I was wondering how he elevated so quickly in the American political scene. Oh, and you're that makes a lot of sense. Out. And that makes a oh. lot of sense because, you know, the way I read it, that he kind of, he went from Korea, he was in prison, and then he ends up as just uh, as a lobbyist for uh on behalf of like korean affairs and anti-japanese affairs and stuff like that but i was wondering you know how did this guy how did this guy rise to power so quickly and that christian angle sounds like definitely makes sense oh it's it gets good man it gets good and what's interesting about this is i think that you know when he goes around the country talking about you know, he talks about obviously Christianity in, in Korea, and that's that's a big talking point, but also like Korean independence, generally speaking. But what's interesting is that he never talks about the Japanese because he knows that most Americans have no idea what's going on in Korea and what the Japanese are doing there. And the second reason is because for the people that do know about what the Japanese are doing there, they would have supported the Japanese because they had this like, honestly very racist idea that koreans were uncivilized and that the japanese were going to help you know lift them up and and these are actually ideas that the japanese themselves work super hard to create now we talked about this in a prior episode remember you know like they they created this this like backstory of like oh look at the barbaric korean people and look we're creating all this industry and look we're teaching them all about like shintoism and shit you know like we're getting them civilized, right? So th- th- this was like the running idea, right? So rather than like talk shit about the Japanese, Re goes full on Jesus route, right? And he starts getting Americans to support Chris- Korean Christianity. And he plants the idea that Christianity and Japanese colonialism are totally incompatible. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done. Especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less. So you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's that's very smart. So you, if you would have talked to the average American about Japanese war crimes against Koreans in the 1920s or the 19 or before that, right after World War One era, they would have been like, huh, <laughs> who gives a crap? <laughs> like, who gives a shit? What? But you tell them that Christians are being persecuted. Then they'll start caring. You know, um, the Syrian war, if you look at a lot of the right-wing people who became very anti-meddling like um, meddling in Syrian politics and became very... Um, they, they did not support Obama's policy and in, in, um, in being hawkish against Syria. A lot of it was because they saw that Assad was... Um, was was rescuing Christians. He was he was liberating Christians, and yeah, the, well, the Alawites are are technically Muslim. Some call them crypto Christians because they have like a deeper relationship with Jesus and other sects of Shia. However, they're technically Muslim Shia, but they're they drink and stuff. <laughs> the Assad's government uh, would liberate Christian villages from ISIS and. Um, you know, American uh, Christian groups would would discover that, and they're like, "Oh, why are we not supporting this guy? Like, the, he's he seems like the good guy to us." So that is kind of funny how you know a, a portion of the American right started uh, empathizing with him more because of that 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 angle of it. Now that's really interesting that he used that strategy to get to get support uh, to to garner up support. It's smart. It's crafty, and, and it's the way that you would do it definitely is it, it definitely is all right so a big event happens right and it's march 1st 1919 and in korea there's this nationwide nonviolent protest that breaks out in korea and and this is like you know huge you know holiday in korea right now it's like big for independence movement right and you know the march 1st movement basically it's it's a bunch of koreans that demand independence from the japanese and, and this protest was definitely a symbolic protest because there was no way the Japanese were going to give it to them. But people 
specifically Re, thought it was a great idea uh, to get the Japanese to basically violently attack Koreans, right? Specifically Christian ones, right? So that Western countries would be forced to step in, which kind of reminds me a little bit of what's going on in Ukraine right now with all this false flag talk that we were talking about earlier. Now that I think about it out loud. Um, but yeah, that, that was the plan, right? It, it was like a good idea. The peacefully protest and had that footage be circulated along the West. And well, you know, it's interesting because in the Korean War, there are massacres of Koreans Mm -hmm. that were sent to, uh, you know, the American press and they were circulated around. And it's like, look at the horrors, the horror. Some famous actor narrated this, too. I forget who the Mm -hmm. actor is, but it's like, look at the horrors of the North Koreans against their fellow people, 10,000 of them dead. And then it ends up actually being a massacre from Sigmund Rhee, like a Sigmund Rhee massacre. And it Dude, wasn't a North Korean massacre. Sigmund uh, we'll Rhee get into that more. Mas- we'll, yeah, we'll definitely talk about that. But Sigmund Rhee is a master of like manipulating United States media. But I'm just going to yeah. say that on that. He's really good at it. Um, so kind of and back building to these political machines. Seriously. Back, back to this March 1st thing, though. So the idea was do a peaceful protest and you know we know what the japanese are going to do they're going to violently retaliate um and they do uh they kill somewhere between 7000 and 10000 people within the first 2 days right but the idea jesus that christ 7000 and 10000 people it's a lot of fucking people in 2 days what were they doing bombing them i have no idea dude i I, I don't even want to learn about that, to be honest, because you don't kill that like, many. People were they just were they just shooting into crowds with machine guns? Like that sounds. That's, that's my presumption. I didn't. I didn't even dare look it up. But I, don't, I don't care to know, to be honest. Um, well, how but, do you know the numbers are accurate then? If that's Sigmund Re numbers, <laughs> that's that's fair. No, it's coming from this guy that that I'm pulling this information from. I, I tend to trust him. Um, but look it up. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? They kill a bunch of people, though. That's that part's not in dispute, right? So, I, I mean, that. I believe it. I've I've read um, a lot of. We've covered Japanese atrocities, and yeah. they they were incredibly brutal. So the, the number not, is almost irrelevant. It's a more astonishing. I'm more. It's not that yeah. I don't believe the numbers. I'm just kind of like what? Like in two days, they just massacred ten thousand people. They just annihilated a bunch of people. Like you have to really put a concerted effort to uh killing if that many people were killed in that in a two-day period yep for sure but you know Ree's plan or at least the idea behind it kind of backfires because west didn't do shit about it right so so as a result re starts making his media rounds so to speak and he gets a bunch of newspapers to print stories Kind of like the one that that um, that we read, I think two episodes ago or something like that, um, from the New York Times that you found uh, about that that was like highlighting how Christians were being slaughtered by the Japanese. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was an it was an archive New York Times article about the barbarity of the Japanese mm-hmm. colonial master. Yeah. But yeah, but it was it was it was a New York Times article that was written in I think 1934. I forget the exact year, but it was it wasn't. 
it was before World War II during right. the, the so, annexation, and and it was and it was a it was a New York Times journalist who was in shock. Basically, he was mm-hmm. like, "What on earth is going on here? This Japanese government is unspeakably cruel." Right, and I've never seen anything like it, and it's just like the horror of. It. I wish I had the article up. I I probably could dig it up, but it would take too much time. But it was really just this New York Times journalist from ni- the nineteen thirties, just kind of, just in stunned with what he saw. And you know what? Honestly, that one was kind of late because you know Re had been making these media rounds pretty much right after this March first, nineteen nineteen, you know, protest. But you can say that. That is an offshoot of like the groundwork that that Re was doing to try and get the word out about how the Japanese were being dicks, right? And 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 the focus was on that Christians were dying because that's what was going to sell, right? Well, that's what said that's, in that New York Times article. That's exactly the premise. Like it exactly. was like Christians are being slaughtered. Mm-hmm. That's right. Because if you say a bunch of Koreans in 1930s, if you say a bunch of Koreans were slaughtered, someone would be like, okay, what? Um, All right, well. And they say, what? Christians are being slaughtered. We need to go save them. Yep. And, you know, honestly, this this media round that that Reed makes, it 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 kind of set up a pretty big grassroots following of, like, these American activists, mostly... You know, Christians and Methodists and things like that. Um, but it was just a lot of people from all over the place and not just in like major cities either. It was like especially popular among rural Americans um, who coincidentally were also very Christian. Right. And, you know, they, they start lobbying Congress and they actually get a bill through and one bill gets within six votes of passing in the U.S. Congress to do something about it. But you know, obviously didn't make it through. And, you know, unfortunately, after that, the excitement about this pro-Korean movement starts to die down a little bit. So to whip up some more support, Re drops his second mixtape, his second book, right? And in this book, he's basically saying that the conflict between the U.S. and Japan is basically inevitable and that the political situation with Japan in Asia, you know, because they're taking over Manchuria and all these other things, basically that's the U.S.'s fault for not getting involved, right? And he's calling out the U.S. for not standing for freedom. And and it's pretty funny, you know, the stuff that he writes about, like the like how he writes about it, because he uses these Christian values you know, and he basically uses what I describe as like a Christian conservative playbook, you know, like you need to stand up for freedom and for God and Jesus and Christians and like, you know, what about the founding fathers? And literally, this is all he wrote. He, he talks about the founding fathers so much in this book, right? This is like playing to the ear of that of that subgroup. This book came out in 1941. Oh, sorry, I'm getting my dates wrong. Four year, It came out four years before Pearl Harbor, right? Why am I fucking up all my dates and numbers here today? <laughs> it's okay. You have what Joe Biden has. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so 
He writes a book four years before Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor happens, right? And Re ends up going on an I told you so tour, right? He's like, ah, I fucking told you. I wrote about it in my book, <laughs> right? And he starts ginning up this support for like a, a revamp of support for Korean independence. And I'm going to skip a whole lot of like context here, but in the end result of it is that, you know, the U.S. kind of does, you talked about it a little earlier, they quasi recognize a provincial you know, like a government, a Korean government, and Ri gets appointed as the president of the provincial Korean government based in the United States. Yeah. So, um, yeah, for that reason, you know, he, he's brought back to Korea on Douglas, Douglas MacArthur's personal airplane to be you know the advisor to this this um u.s occupation force in korea after the war what's interesting is that it's like it's relatively um you know he was from what i've read you know one of his advantages was that he was actually unknown in a lot of because he was in the u.s and because he was an unknown because he spent so much time in the u.s that ends up working in his favor, and the reason why it works up works in his favor is because, um, at that point, the Korean independence movement was torn up by um, you know different factions. A lot of the leaders started hating each other more than they even hated the Japanese. So Re, being an, un- an unknown, he ends up being a compromise candidate, somebody that different factions can settle on as a compromise instead of putting, you know, one leader in charge of everything, or like, you know, one leader in charge of, a, of an opposite or rival faction. Right. And wanna, the, be, before you uh, go on, I want to kind of point out that how similar that is to Kim Il-sung, right? Kim Il-sung spent most of his time in China. He was also an unknown. And he was also a compromise candidate. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, there's just like less information on Kim Il Sung. Well, there's le- there's really not that much information on either of these characters, to be completely honest. It's hard to cipher. It's it's hard to like get the full. It's a, it's a uh, little easier the, the for picture. for Re because he spent so much time in the United yeah. States, you know. But generally speaking, they're both kind of like these like dark horse, out of left field, you know, unknown characters that, you know, they're enigmas. Yep, they're both these weird enigmas, but you know they end up doing kind of the same thing. They the same goal, same thing, but very, very different backgrounds. And um, it's 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 interesting because they're both unknowns, like two sides of the same coin. Kim Il Sung being a guy who's like basically, for all we know, his whole life story is just completely made up, and we don't really know anything. We know like little snippets of him being like, you know. Um, born in Korea his family's exiled to Manchuria or allegedly exiled to Manchuria they you know they may have just moved on their own accord and then all of a sudden he becomes the leader of the communist movement at the age of 14 he becomes this badass guerrilla fighter he has all these crazy victories and then he links up with the Soviet Union 
gets all these, um, yeah, you know, gets gets real military experience, real political training, and then comes back and becomes that leader of Korea who frees everyone and defeats the Japanese with one hand behind his back. You know, obviously a lot of that story is, well, most of that story is completely falsified. Um, you know, in our last show, we were talking about this guy. It He could have been a different person. Like he may have been, you know, there was a name change. So there may have been someone um, pretending to be the real Kim Il-sung um, who just took that identity and he was just complete Soviet proxy. But they are very, it is very interesting to just look at them as just very similar figures who, who are just doing the same thing, different backgrounds, but uh, same end goals to become tyrants, <laughs> tyrannical uh, despots. But I guess of, of two parts of Korea and the fact that it's just, you know, it's one country, it, it makes it even more interesting that these guys with these very different backgrounds both become like the despots of, of uh, these ideological movements that dominate, um, you know, the 40-year period. So, um, but yeah, Re is put there by the U.S. government because they think that he could ease tensions because the Korean Peninsula was in really bad shape after the war. So I, I pulled another report, uh, another CIA report for, um, to Truman. This one's from January 3rd, 1947. I'm going to read it. While the Soviet discipline reigns the north of the 38th parallel, South Korea is in a state of unrest. Factionalism and party strife have recently culminated in a series, in a series of strikes threatening the security of the military gov- government and calling for armed intervention by U.S. troops. According to official estimates, approximately 40 policemen and 40 rioters were killed in street fighting in Taegu and Pusan areas at the beginning of October. Property losses totaled millions of yen while arrests numbered 3,782. U.S. troops were occasionally forced to fire into mobs during the course of these disturbances. What? Fire into mobs? So they were shooting... Uh, live rounds and I'm presuming they're live rounds and they're not like rubber bullets did they even have rubber bullets back then or did they use rubber bullets I don't think maybe I'm wrong maybe they did but shooting into mobs I guess that's how the Japanese killed 10,000 protesters right in two days just shooting into mobs Um, so the end of these disorders is not yet in sight and reports continue to come in and of attempt assassination and sabotage. General Hodge, General Hodge is the military governor of Korea. He's the U.S. military governor of Korea who, who took the mantle after the war, has publicly accused the communists of fomenting insurrection against the military government in order to break up the unification of the right and the left and block the establishment of provisional legislators in South Korea. The basic cause of current disorders in South Korea is perhaps less political than economic. Like other occupied areas, the U.S. zone of Korea suffers from scarcity and inflation. Communist leadership has only exploited the discontent aroused by want. I like that. Aroused, exploited discontent aroused by want. I never heard it phrased like that. 
the reports get into the problems with um so um the food situation in south korea has been critical ever since last june when floods spoiled grain crops the free market in grain which the military government maintained last winter permitted a wasteful dis- dis- distribution of existing reserves of rice food controls were put into effect last march too late to prevent a shortage the breakdown of transportation because of strikes, floods, and wartime deterioration has further complicated the distribution of available supplies in South Korea. Grain shipments from the U.S. during August and September were 25% short minimum requirements. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's like, this is not the only, this is just one uh, CIA report. Because the CIA, you know, when they first started, they, they kind of, op- I mean, the purpose of the CIA when they started the, you know, the alleged purpose, the on paper purpose, at least in Truman's point of eyes, a point, a point of view, before it merged, morphed into like this, um, this like rogue agency that overthrew government at behest of big, of, uh, of like corporate America. It, um, you know, it was like a newspaper for the president. You know, it was like, just like a, it was just like the briefing of the world for the president. That's like what, what it was supposed to be like you know the the people on the ground who would send the president you know the most important reliable information that he needed to know yep that um, explains why it was so well written <laughs> yeah and and honestly well, all the guys this, in the CIA were they're all like educated um like princeton lawyers yep like that from new york honestly re- you know reading this out loud it again another comparison to north korea but like if, if you were to read that and just replace all of the Souths with Norths, you'd be like, yeah, that sounds like North Korea. But South Korea was basically what North Korea is today at this time. It's like it flipped. Yeah, uh, South Korea was incredibly impoverished. Like it was... Heavily it was reliant v- on, on a, a superpower to just make sure that they were fed. A lot of discontent by the people. Yeah, and it, it, it comes to that age-old question I'm sure we're going to have to tackle before the end of this series is that did the U— well, this is not even an age-old question. It's a given. Did the U.S. intervention in Korea save Korea from becoming um, like North Korea? Like would, North, would, would South Korea—would a united Korea— United under Kim Jong up uh, Kim Jong Un, well, um, Kim Il Sung, would that just be like the same horrible country that it is right now, or you know would history have turned out differently? Did that happen? Would Korea, which it would Korea would have thrived uh, despite the, the 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 Korean War, but uh, despite the intervention uh, by the United States? Yeah, that's the the real question, Be- because North Korea doesn't become the garrison state that it is right now, without the Korean War. That's right. But I think we can dive deeper into that question later on, about the justification of the U.S. intervention and did it cause good or did it cause bad, or did you know did it not really do anything? Now, um, so I, despite this guy coming in to bring to to ease tensions um he ends up just being a maniac 
So I guess his biggest problem is that he would, you, you know, you, you pointed it out that he had this masterful ability to manipulate the press and manipulate people. And he was a great public speaker. Um, he would do anything to build up his prestige among Korean people. Right. And not just Korean people, but everyone, you know, he, he actually argued to the American public quite convincingly, I might add, that Americans shouldn't die fighting for Korea, that instead they should just give Koreans guns and money and that they'll do it themselves, that by supporting Korea, they'd immediately have 22 million allies to fight the Japanese. And, and this pissed off a lot of people, especially in the State Department and in the military, because there was no way some dude who wasn't even in Korea was going to get all of Korea to fight the Japanese, you know? But Ri had the ear of the American public, you know, largely in part because of his strategy of, of playing on the, on the Jesus card. And, you know, the American people were already pretty pissed at the State Department and the military for their handling of World War II anyway. Yeah, so like I was saying, Ri was a smart, sneaky dude, and he would make these promises that he couldn't keep. And he would basically get the support he needed by just pouring salt into the right wounds. Well, you know, I think I think you're giving this guy too much credit um, as far as predicting a conflict with Japan and the United States because everyone everyone was everyone was predicting that at that point. Like everyone, the the relationship between Japan and just like the Western world in general was really bad between the United States and Britain because they felt like they weren't getting, getting the respect that a world power should get and they saw themselves as the world an imperial world power because they got too late and you know they got into the imperial business the empire building business too late so everyone had their empires and they wanted to make their empire and when when the united states would condemn them for for building an empire for annexing other countries they would be like well France and Britain, why do they get to build empires? But we don't. Like, what the hell? It's total hypocrisy. And then there was a lot of tension over the um, anti-Asian immigration laws passed in the United States. There were a lot of things that were going on between the United States and Japan that um, spelled out an eventual an eventual conflict. Um, and, and, you know, the, the oil embargo was basically the icing on the cake where the Japanese were like, all right, we have to, this war is going to happen. We have to strike first. Um, so he wasn't exactly a genius. No, like, he, even, he wasn't. He wasn't Nostradamus. What I'm, why, the reason why I think he was so smart wasn't because, you know, he had a fucking crystal ball and he knew that it was going to happen. I think he was smart because he he was able to identify a like a cultural zeitgeist. Like some some hot button topic that he could use to get what he wanted. Yeah. So he was able to exploit the 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 hot topic to advance his own agenda. That's right. Um, so I have another CIA report on him if you want to hear it. Yeah. All right. Rhee Singman is a genuine patriot acting in what he regards as the best interests of an independent Korea. He tends, however, to regard the best interests of Korea as synonymous with his own. It is as it is as if he is in his own mind at least were Korea. Ri has devoted his life to the cause of an independent Korea with the ultimate objective of personally controlling the country. 
In pursuing this end, he has shown few scruples about the elements which he has been willing to utilize for his personal advancement, with the important exception that he has always refused to deal with communists. This accounts for the fact that Ri has become the symbol of anti-communism in the Korean mind. He has also been unscrupulous in his attempts to thrust aside any person or group he felt to be in his way. Ri's vanity has made him highly susceptible, susceptible to contrived flattery of self-seeking interests in the U.S. And in, and in Korea. His intellect is a shallow one, and his behavior is often irrational and literally childish. childish. Yet Ri, in his final analysis, has proved himself to be a remarkably astute politician. Although he has created for himself the combination role of Korean Moses and Messiah, he has very early permitted himself to forget the hard political realities of his position. <laughs> wow. And, um, you know, Korean basically... Moses. <laughs> yeah, they use the word Korean Moses and Messiah. And <laughs> basically, they, they're writing... The exact words are later on in the report, I may have already said this, is that he is highly capable of building political machines that no one else in Korea can. And that's basically what he says, what they say. They're like, they we're kind of, for, like, this guy's a complete jackass. We have to deal with him because, like, he, he's the only choice we really have. He can build, he has the experience um, with Western politics that we want, that we need. There are other people that the U.S. government wanted to work with, preferably to, to re that they enjoyed working. Well, they enjoyed it's too strong of a word. They preferred to work with. There are other candidates to be the, the president, but they some of them were too left leaning. Um, one of them ended up screwing them over, and then another guy they wanted wanted, which just didn't get off the ground with popular support. I think he was the other guy that Chiang Kai-shek recommended, but he they had they were they were forced to go with Ri. That was their only option because you know they were most likely going to go communist, or the communists had all the momentum there. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. And again, and again I just want to point out just like Kim Il-sung. The Soviet Union didn't want Kim Il-sung, you know? Like, they, their handlers had to, like, teach him and coach him how to fucking read a script, you know? And he, like, barely spoke Korean. And, you know, there were people who didn't quite like working with him. And there was another guy that they prefer to work with him, but that guy wasn't down with the partitioning of Korea. So that was, like, a non-starter. So they end up like being forced to be like, all right, well, I guess this guy is like a revolutionary or whatever. And, you know, he speaks Russian, you know, so. Yeah, the speaking Russian part was was more important. Yeah. To communicate like, with us. 
Yeah, we can we can talk to him. <laughs> so I guess he's our guy. He doesn't need to know good Korean. He's reading a script anyway. He couldn't read. That was I mean, he could read. Oh yeah, like, he couldn't read. Well, he's just saying what he's he, he could read, told but he say. just couldn't read very well. <laughs> he's you know couldn't read good. Did Derek, read do, good. did Derek Zoolander school for for kids who can't read good? And want to learn um, how to do other things good too. Yeah. <laughs> is this for center for ants? <laughs> what is this? A center for ants? Um, Needs to be at least three times bigger. <laughs> three times bigger. <laughs> Derek, this is just the model. He's exactly right. Um, so, okay, he's a head case. He, he's, everyone's aware that he's going to cause problems. Um, but, you know, history hasn't actually mentioned this, that Ree wanted to invade North Korea. He believed that South Korea, or the South Korean military was better. And then if the war broke out, that he would that there would be mass defections from the North. Um, I guess he also took the UN recognition of South Korea as the, the um, you know, as legitimizing his role over the entire peninsula. Um, you know, the only reason why Rhee didn't attack, didn't launch an attack, was due to the U.S. government being reluctant to heavily arm him because they knew who they were working with. Basically, the policy was to keep re-supplied with just enough arms, just enough weapons, just enough support to control the South, not to, to invade the North. Um, and, and John Hodge, the military governor of Korea, hated him. He hated him. Um, you know, he would lie about everything. He would exaggerate things. There's this really funny story about um, John Hodge dealing with re he was going on, Ree was going on a diplomatic trip to China and John Hodge didn't let him go on a plane. He's like, you can't go, you can't go on a U.S. military plane. You need to go on a boat. And he's like, why? Because if you go there on a plane, you're going to go there and say that you have the full backing of the U.S. military. You're getting on a boat and you're going to make it seem like you're just some minor character. You're not getting on a, you're not flying there and exaggerating your support. So um, they they were fully aware with what they were working with. Um, here, I actually have a letter from Hodge about about um, about him, and he says, "Just here's a quote: They have sold themselves as being enemies of communism. True, they are enemies of communism, but they are also enemies of the United States in dealing with the Korean problem. This is what it amounts to." Hmm. Well, I guess. Now's probably a good time to talk about that final revolution, <laughs> right? Uh, and and that that final revolution that Re has is against communism. But what what's interesting about the story, and it's and it's funny because uh, at least from from the sources that I've been reading, apparently, and and, and from Re himself, he wasn't particularly anti-communist. Actually, he himself said he liked parts of communism. Uh, in particular, the socialist parts. So he liked that society should be more equal. That's probably because of his past and like growing up in a caste system that was he was about to get booted out of because he <laughs> needed to pass a test. You know, uh, he he liked definitely the abolition of caste systems. He liked the economics of communism, like the social welfare programs. And what he didn't like about communism 
was its anti-religious stance and its opposition to nationalism, which he thought was the most important thing for Korea. But basically, for Ri, he was kind of a pragmatist in this respect. For Ri, what really mattered was that whatever was going to help for a Korean independence movement, you know, that's what he was going to do. If it was communism, then he'd do communism. But he just didn't think that communism was what Korea needed. And so initially, in the very beginning, he actually does associate with communists. He, he brings people in, you know, to his circle that were communists. And he actually went to the Soviet Union to get aid. And he f- ends up failing, of course, because they were already trying to set up Kim Il-sung to have Korea. But if they had given him money or aid at all, he would have taken it. And so he does this interesting thing in Korea once he starts ruling in the South, where he starts incorporating a lot of these leftist policies into his governance. And these were all policies that, you know, a lot of communists, which, you know, keep in mind, there were still communists in the South. It wasn't like a hard divide, right? You know, so these communists in the South, they, they particularly took to a lot of the things that he was incorporating into his government. And that was, you know, stuff like the you know, state supervision of commercial and industrial enterprises, uh, they did reforms to ensure fair treatment of, of you know, consumers and traders and, and workers. Uh, they had unemployment. They had social security. Uh, they had state control of medicine and health facilities. And they did this light land reform. And, and the land reform is pretty interesting because unlike most communist land reform, what the South Korean government did under Rhee was they basically took all the land and then sold it to farmers. And that's, that's pretty different from the communist model because in the communist model, the state still owns the land. They just let people live and work on that land. And the people that are working on that land end up having to pay taxes on whatever they produce. So the South Korean model that Rhee did is kind of like land reform light. And it allowed farmers to basically eventually own the land themselves. And they had to pay like a, like a lease or a... Um, like a mortgage on it but you know it, it was kind of an interesting idea um but because it was done by the government of course it obviously took a crazy long time and the benefits of that program you don't start seeing the benefits of that program until like much much later like it took a really long time to reap the benefits from it and needless to say a lot of koreans especially the communist ones really liked these plans and so Ri started to work, you know, this is where it gets a little, his, his relationship with the communists split. Remember that communism, he, he, it's not that he was particularly against communism. He just didn't like particular parts of communism. One of those parts was the nationalist one. And he saw communism as a threat to nationalism. And so he starts getting this idea to re-educate communists in the South. And one way that he would do it is be like, all right. I'm going to give him a, I'm going to throw him a bone with some of this like light communist shit. And in return, what we're going to ask them to do is basically become re-educated. So he went to a bunch of these communists and he said, he made a program and he said, Hey, if you're a communist, no big deal. Just let us know. And we'll help you out with some welfare programs and some education, which is just, you know, re-education really. 
And honestly, a lot of communist Koreans end up putting their names down on this list. And as I'm sure you can imagine, this ends really badly for them. You know, the list actually just ends up becoming a hit list. And, you know, after the North invades the South, there's there's your list of people to go after. Yeah, that, there's your there's your people who uh, the first people. Oh, Jesus, that's uh, it was that's, it was uh, really bad. Dark. It was really bad. There's this one incident where the government basically sets out to murder everybody who's on the list. And again, I'm, I'm gonna not try and mess up the, these numbers again because t- today I'm not very good with them. But the actual number that were killed is actually in dispute. But I've read somewhere between ten and two hundred thousand people, which is a huge spread. So take that num- those numbers as you will. Let's just say it was a lot of fucking people, a lot of communists. It was it was just as much as many uh, Japanese people, Jap- the Japanese Imperial Army killed in two days. That's right. At least at least as, as many. much as least <laughs> as many at least as many as the Japanese and- killed in two days of uh, protest. And, and, and you know, I mean, going back to the thing where, you know, I was saying that, you know, we were making the argument that him and Rhee and Ch- Chiang Kai-shek are the biggest, like, communist killers ever. This is just one of many, many incidents of mass killings of communists in the South during the Korean War. Just one. And I'm certain when we actually get into the war, we'll probably have lots to say about that. Um, yeah, so I guess the, the next the next episode in this series we're probably going to do. I, I guess the or like we're actually going to get to the origins of the war and like how it started and and um, I don't know maybe the first half I don't know how we're going to do. I'm not sure exactly how we're going to do or you know we're not sure exactly how we're going to do this because the war kind of breaks down pretty neatly into three sections. Um, with like the origins of the war, um, the U.S. intervention, um, the the invasion, you know, the winter where the Chinese invade, uh, uh, step in and, and intervene. There's like different. There's there's different phases. There's different phases of the war, and uh, maybe we'll. I don't know how we're gonna do it yet, but um, there's certainly plenty of content. But. Hope you guys are enjoying the series. Is there anything we <laughs> yeah. should add? Yeah, man. So, so just want to wrap up because last episode we talked about Kim Il Sung, and you know we talked about how he's the the main guy for the North, and we just got done talking about Singman Rhee, and we'd left out so many things. But like, hopefully by now you kind of get the picture that we're trying to paint here. All right, we've got two guys that on the one hand, seem very fucking different, right? Come from very different backgrounds, live very different lives, but in many ways are very, very similar and end up being crazy despots that we, that, and, and proxies for the Soviet Union and you know the United States respectively. And what's, what I find crazy about this is like how how these two guys out of all the people <laughs> end up putting like these are probably the worst two people to pick and it's just 
wild and ironic that these are the two these are the two like characters it's like it's like you're playing a game of mortal Kombat, you know there's player one and player two you know these are the two guys that are gonna fight to the death basically sub sub-zero and scorpion seriously get over here <laughs> um yeah man it's and, and they're both you know exploited the the very Thanks. real problems of mm-hmm. of uh of the korean people of of the korean people that had to deal with with caste systems and um invasions and, um, and colonization and um it's a lot of bad things that they exploited which i think we'll we'll get into of why i think i think something that i'm interested and exploring is why the war got so was so violent reading about this war it's like one of the most violent wars um i've ever read about so and that's after thinking about the meat grinders of world war one <laughs> yeah just an incredibly violent war all right um let's end this thing because i'm see it's 11 it's late <laughs> it's late i'm not making much sense anymore talking in slow motion all right thank you everyone for listening to another episode if you want to support the show make sure you rate and review the podcast that is the number one way to support our show Um, if you're listening on apple rate and review us if you're listening on spotify rate us it's a new feature on spotify you can rate podcasts it's in the top left hand corner of your spotify app rate us it helps us it helps us grow on spotify which we all want and um, you can also support us on Patreon at Patreon-BroHistory. The link is in the description, and you can join our Slack. And um, I know some of you guys are probably expecting us to comment on Ukraine or dedicate another episode to Ukraine. We're just recording on Thursday right now, and it's going to be irrelevant by the time we release an episode on Monday. You know, whatever. <laughs> things are moving so quickly, so... What we could say now won't really be relevant. You know, things are moving so fast, it won't be relevant by Monday. So, you know, we like to do the current event episodes the day before and to release the morning of. Um, so, unfortunately. Maybe we, but shoot, we we're, maybe we shoot for next week. Who knows? We'll see. Yeah, maybe. Um, I'll be traveling all next week. So, we'll... We'll, uh, we'll figure it out. <laughs> we'll, we'll figure it out. But, um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'll st- I will cease my rambling. Um, but if you want our Ukraine commentary, we're giving constant Ukraine commentary on our page and on our Slack. So join us there. All right, peace, peace.